Here on Just Energy, we explore what energy injustice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policy making more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. This is Sonia Carley, your co-host of Just Energy. A central premise of a just transition away from fossil fuels is that decarbonization can create economic opportunities, such as new well-paying jobs for a diverse workforce. But creating this reality brings challenges, especially for companies like the US auto manufacturers who hope to change and adapt while still wrestling with decades of institutional legacies. Equity in clean energy is not automatic. Here to talk to us today about these dynamics is Keith Cooley. Keith is a management consultant working to link America's economic recovery to a green collar agenda. This agenda develops cutting edge technology to combat issues of environmental crises and trains underserved communities as the next generations of technologists in support of these sectors. Keith serves on the Michigan's Advisory Council for Environmental Justice. He has been named a national public opinion leader by the George W. Bush administration, served as a cabinet member to Michigan's former governor, Jennifer Granholm, and advised Francis Francois Hollande on future energy trends. His professional and personal history is even more fascinating than this, though, as a former gymnast with degrees in engineering physics, who worked for a time at GM and has run Next Energy, among many other accomplishments, at least some of which I hope that he will share with us today. And as I'm sure you will glean from his commentary, he is truly an inspirational leader of environmental and energy justice. But before Keith joins us, let me also introduce my co-host for today's episode, Maddie Yaswick. Maddie is a doctoral student at the O'Neill School, where she studies energy policy and utility regulation. Prior to graduate school, Maddie worked at Vote Solar, Sunrun, and Bloomberg New Energy Finance. She has founded a solar energy organization called Project Bright as an undergraduate at Yale. Welcome to Just Energy, Maddie, and thank you for being my co-host today. Hi, Sonia. So why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? So I am from a little town in New York called Croton-on-Hudson. Oh, where about in New York is that? You know, it is about 45 minutes north of New York City, right along the Hudson River. Lovely. And one of our co-hosts previously, Alana Davasino, is also from a similar region and spoke very highly of the bagels. I'm very curious to hear from you. Are the bagels really amazing? It's so funny. That's actually the thing I miss most about being home is literally the bagels from the specific bagel shop in my hometown. Uh, I love it. Uh, So is that your favorite thing about your home, which was my next question? Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's a tie between the bagels and then just the beauty of the Hudson River. It's a really pretty area. Yeah. And what are your favorite things about your doctoral studies so far at the O'Neill School? I mean, too many things, but I would say I... The honestly interacting with the faculty here, I think has been incredible present company, very much included, (laughs) but I've, I've really, I've learned a ton, um, in just a year and a half. And I look forward to continue learning. It's been a really wonderful experience. All right, Maddie, why don't you join me in welcoming Keith to the podcast? Welcome Keith. Hi Keith. How are you? How are you guys doing? Great. Great. Hey, sitting in the green room, I heard something about bagels, and I will simply say, Maddie, that my wife is a big Bialy fan. Ooh, ooh, Bialy's are incredible. We drive halfway across the city of Detroit to go get Bialy's over in the section that sells them. So, <laughs> just so you know, I just, I'm just saying. 
I'm thinking that might be worth the drive actually from Bloomington. <laughs> that sounds like a, what is it? Five hours, four and a half. I think that's worth the drive. Yeah. There and back in a day. I agree. So Keith, on this podcast, we are exploring the meaning and underpinnings of energy justice. How do you typically define energy justice? I kind of put the idea of justice or just outcomings in, a, in, in, in this sort of, I think, a simple concept, making sure that everyone enjoys the same rights and privileges and the benefits from fair and equitable enforcement of the country's laws around energy, environment, social things, wealth, health, et cetera. Regardless of geography, race, color, origin, income, sexual orientation, and age. What led you into the field of energy justice to the work that you're doing now and, and have done over the years? Maybe that's a it's sort of a convoluted sort of a thing. I started out at a as a kid at, at, at sort of eight eight years old asking my parents, well, how come we get all these hangers in our closet and when we finish with them, we just throw them away. Doesn't that, doesn't that cause problems? And I was basically told that the world is an energy sink. No matter what you throw into it, it will find a way to get rid of it. And of course, I didn't believe it at, at my age. Even then, I didn't believe it. And as I've grown up, I found out that's not really true. So all through my growing process, maturation into adulthood and beyond, I've been really interested in the environment where things go, what things do, and whether or not we're actually going to cram our throats so full of stuff we can't swallow, as well as, and even more importantly, how does that impact communities of color, uh, low-income communities, whether they are rural or urban, et cetera. Because I, I grew up in a, I was born in Ann Arbor. My, I was third generation at University of Michigan, but my dad uh, went back to Pontiac, which is a real small sort of low-income town in, the, in, in Michigan. And uh, it's been, it's a lot like Flint. If you've heard of Flint with the lead problems, et cetera, Pontiac's a lot like that. A lot of big problems going on, people not getting what they should get. And if you know the right people, live in the right place and have enough money, things look different than if they do for you if you lived where I did. Maybe we could, could push you a little bit more to, to talk about your professional path. You know, growing up in Pontiac was an interesting prospect. Uh, and growing up on the south side of that small tough, dirty town was even more interesting. Uh, I was homeless with my mom when I was about four years old. I was told in school by a guidance counselor that clearly I would have to go work in the auto companies on the line, on the production line, assembly line, because I wasn't bright enough to go to college, even though I had A's and B's and math and science and, you know, chemistry, et cetera. Um, of course, my dad wasn't real happy about that, and we had a real long talk with that counselor who finally put me in college prep instead of general studies. But I did, I was able to go to Michigan. I was able to get a degree in engineering physics and then a degree in nuclear engineering. Uh, <clears throat> I became an executive at General Motors and spent time in Germany and Italy building car programs up. Uh, I ran Focus Hope, which is a civil and human rights organization in the city of Detroit, where we we take young folks from the city, some who often can't read or do math at the eighth grade level, seventh or eighth grade level, and spin them up into machinists, information technologists, and engineering manufacturing, manufacturing engineers, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, as you well mentioned, the governor asked me to come, asked me to come and run the uh, DLEG, the Department of Labor and Economic Growth, with a $1.4 billion budget of about six or 7,000 people in 35 departments. 
Then she sent me to Next Energy, which is sort of the Southeast area's prime energy, uh, clean energy accelerator. And now I just do consulting on my own, but it's been a really, it's been a fun run. I've had a lot of good things happen. I'm curious um, what your experience was like uh, with General Motors earlier in your career. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you joined? Let me go back a step. I came to General Motors uh, after uh, getting my master's at Michigan. And, and of course, then after living in upstate New York for a couple of years in Schenectady and Albany area right, for, uh, for the Knowles Atomic Power Lab, we were building reactors for the Navy program. When I first went to work for General Motors as an intern during my summer away from college, even though I was an engineer, they put me to work in the assembly line area in reliability, sometimes going into the, the, the pits to try to find inspection tickets. And even though I had to wear a white shirt, I'd come out with grease all over me. And I asked them, why can't I work in the engineering department? That's what I'm studying for, and I'm doing okay. They said, well, we really don't know why they don't want you over there, but we really like you here a lot. So I, you know, I, I knew, well, <laughs> I knew what was going on. So for three summers, I worked in, in uh, reliability at Pontiac. And the last year I said, you guys clearly have a problem because some of my friends are in engineering. They are white. They didn't get as good a grade as I did. And they're, they're working over there in, in John DeLorean's engineering plant. So next year, I'm not coming back. So we fast forward now to coming to the environmental activity staff as an engineer after I've got my degrees and all. Interesting place to be. Uh, not a lot of overt uh, uh, racism or bias. Um, and, and I think people there really kind of understood in a sort of in a clinical way, this issue of environmental justice, climate justice, et cetera. Because we, we, did, we did understand that the cars that we were building were polluting the air. Um, but it was, it was tough to talk about it with the uh, leadership of the organization. As I got older, I actually got to know uh, Rick Wagner, who was one of the uh, presidents and CEOs of, of uh, GM. And we had a lot of talks about that. Like I, left, I left GM. I was working for him at the time, but I left GM. Uh, because of not being able to get through the fact that we were killing ourselves, killing our children. Enough of that. Uh, when I moved from uh, environmental activity staff in my younger years to Cadillac, where I worked for 15 years, the vice president of environmental activity staff, who actually took me aside and said, we're going to put you there. You're going to have a mentor. We think there are good things you can do for this organization. You're going to become a, an executive there. Just kind of follow the rules, et cetera. I ran a department in the engineering group. And at one of our leadership meetings, one of my friends who was in Chicago as a, as a sales exec said, you guys in engineering don't care what kind of crap you give us sales folks. Uh, you ought to see the junk you're putting out. And I said to him, I said, you know, Bill, you're a buddy of mine. I didn't realize that was a big deal. I'm going to come and see it. I went to see him and I took a couple of my um, assistant uh, uh, department heads with me. And we were surprised at some of the things we found. I mean, car paint, that was all screwed up. It, uh, transmissions that didn't work. I mean, just real problems. So I pledged to him that I would 
come every three months with another one of my folks and that we would look at his shop and shops around the uh, uh, the state or of the uh, the country to see if the same kind of things were going on. Well, they were. We took notes and sent those notes off to our chief engineer, our general manager, our head of finance, our head of reliability, et cetera. And I got to tell you, I just, there was a storm. And uh, you know what kind of storm? You shouldn't be going out <laughs> doing this. Uh, that's not your job. You should be designing cars, et cetera. Um, and eventually, they put so much pressure on my boss that he came to me and said, I don't want you going on these trips anymore. And I just, I said, um, but you know, I'm getting good information. He said, well, yeah, but that's not your job. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. So we, we ended up in a, in a, a, a bit of a showdown. I was headed out on a trip and he came out on the floor as I was leaving, go out, of the, out the door. And he says, I don't want you going on this trip. And I said, uh, Dave, um, if you order me not to go, I won't go. But you know what I'm finding and you know how important it is. He said, well, I can't really order you not to go. So I said, I'll see you later. I got on the plane with one of my guys. I said, I probably won't have a job when I get back. Turns out not only did I have a job when I got back. Uh, that year, we went after the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award. We did not win it because we did not have this feedback loop that talked about cars get out in the field. They're bad. What do you do to fix them? The material that my guys and I brought back was used for the input for the next year. Cadillac became the first and only company, automobile company, to win the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award in 1990, 1991. That's so, incredible. <laughs> I yeah, love it. Was, was I a pain in the ass? Yeah, I was a real pain <laughs> in the ass. But did we get things done? Yeah, we got things done. Yeah. Sorry. Well, that same strength and determination is evident in your, your work today as well. And what makes you such a strong leader in this field. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I have my moments when I may have some doubt, but I I have told so many other people that I think a couple of things that were key to success for me was suspending disbelief about what I could do or what I couldn't do. And then being passionate about getting things done, even if there were things that were sort of strange to me and different, try it anyway. You, You don't like raw oysters? How do you know? Try it. See what happens. And, and it's, it's, it's been, it's been good. It's been good. Um, switching gears very slightly um, mm-hmm. during your time with GM and even now in your current roles, I'm curious how you've observed the auto industry changing over the years. Yeah. Boy, that's a loaded question in some ways. <laughs> I think the auto industry has grown. Uh, leaps and bounds around this issue of equity for all of those stations that we talked about earlier, you know, geographic income, color, uh, sex, that kind of thing. I think they have grown. I don't think they've grown nearly enough. I think General Motors has learned a lot of lessons, but I also think that quarterly, quarterly sales reports and the stock price drive decisions that in the clear light of day, they wouldn't normally make. And they do it anyway. So uh, have they gotten better about a lot of things? Yeah. But I will tell you that even now, I think in the last, and and Tanya knows that I put it in my report in the last couple of years or so, there have been GM plants and port plants that have had nooses hanging in the plant, Uh, 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 notes on the doors that says whites only, 
and uh, and other sort of racial racially insensitive things because of people that are not like some of the other folks on the planet. So, so they've come a long way, but they still have a long way to go. Yeah. Well, so this actually touches on something I wanted to ask you about. And as you know, you and I are both members of the Roosevelt Project team, which is a project led by Ernest Moniz focused on the just transition. And your contributions have focused uh, primarily, though not exclusively, on the history of the auto industry in the Midwestern heartland. And it's really complicated and often painful history with racism. So you've touched on this a little uh, about the the history of racism in the auto industry. I'm curious, are, are these uh, trends still prevalent today and how does it manifest? And maybe if I could push you one more step too, what are some solutions that come to mind for addressing these issues? Yeah, they're, they're, they're still there. They're still, they're still there and they're still painful. But in a book that I've shared with some folks and, and maybe some of your audience would be interested in it. It's a book by a lady named Heather McGee. It's a, it's a New York Best Times on the New York list of bestsellers. Uh, and it's called The Sum of Us. And basically the idea in the book is that uh, oftentimes folks at the lower end of the income scale and social scale, if you will, you would think they would have a lot in common no matter what their color or ethnicity, et cetera. But they have this sense from their, their uh, of station from their environment and the people are around that we may be poor, but we're not black. We may be poor, but we're not Hispanic. We may be poor, but we're not, you know, fill in the blank. And at times, if the choice is uh, uh, get some relief from the government or from others for what's going on with you, being able to bring yourself up financially uh, in a health aspect, et cetera. If it's that choice that brings all, you know, rises all ships, that brings black folks, uh, um, uh, Middle Easterns, et cetera, up, or stay where you are, they pick stay where I am. Because at least where I am, I'm, I'm above them. And I, it was a it was a premise that I hadn't, thought that hard about until I read her book and then read the materials that showed examples of how that works that I really, it really started to make sense. So I think a lot of that's what I like. I think a lot of that's going on and I'm, I'm less hopeful for making the just transition happen in the best way it should over the next 10 or 15 years, unless that sentiment goes away. What I've been trying to do is find common ground that we can, things we can agree on and work from there around the edges of where our conflicts have been. And I think they would tell you that we as a group are doing better about, about all of that now. And I offer that to as many people who will listen, find the common ground. Don't, you know, don't stand away from each other, find that common ground and figure out how to use it. Start the conversation there. Start the, yes. Mm -hmm. And when you, and when, I don't know if you saw that picture that was in the paper a year or two ago, well, right after the George Floyd piece and people were marching. A couple of the police officers who were white went to the crowd, got down on a knee and shook hands. And the crowd just, they bloomed, they blossomed. They, I mean, it was, it was a small token of uh, appreciation, of understanding what, what they knew. I'm sure those officers, when they went back, caught a whole bunch of help from some of their friends, but they kind of got the idea that 
somewhere here we've got to stop fighting. We've got to figure out how to join hands around a common goal. I'm going to ask a, a question that I'm going to, and I'm going to word it in two ways in light of the perspective that you just shared. And uh, the, the first way to ask this question is, do you see opportunity for the auto industry in the transition to electric vehicles? And then I think maybe the flip side is, do you see a way that the transition could go wrong and how might that happen? So maybe getting at some of the trends that you were just noting and observing in terms of where workforce is shifting and things like that. Uh, the, 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 those are a good couple of questions. Thank you. So the first to the first one, yes, I see, <clears throat> I see a lot of opportunity for the transition to go well because the federal government, state government, and people in general, uh, a, 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 as the population begins to sort of brown, if you will, I mean, you know, it, it's going to be more people of color just there, and a whole lot of folks who are white are not part of this group of they're just ha- they just haven't been as, as vocal in some ways. I, I suspect, and I think I see opportunities for those things to make a big difference. Um, policy recommendations at the state and federal level are, are sort of uh, forcing the question around, if we throw money into the circumstance and try to understand how we can make the electric vehicle infrastructure, the charging stations and that kind of thing, be as plentiful in in low income and communities of color as it is in the sort of the you know the houses on the hill would you if we could throw money at you to do that would you do that and the utility companies are saying heck yeah yeah we'll do it and some of these some of these um experiments are already going on in california i think ohio new york and a couple other places so so i'm very hopeful so that said on the other side all of those efforts can only go so far. When it comes to Washington and state government, I have seen in my in my uh, few years at that stuff that uh, no matter how noble and no matter no matter how important a project can be, if someone throws enough money at the right people, it'll get voted down. Right now, we spend an inordinate amount of money to grow corn in places that it shouldn't be grown, such that they have to put a lot of fertilizer on it. The fertilizer runs into drains where it shouldn't be. That water ends up in people's uh, uh, water systems or in lakes and causes these harmful algal blooms that you see. I finally had a chance to talk to someone who understands the lobbying business. And they just sat me down one day with a cup of coffee and said, Keith, until you can help the farming the farmers not pay attention to that lobby that they have, who's just pushing money at them to do the stuff that they're doing. Until you can do that, you don't have a, a promise. There's, there's no hope. And as I looked at it, that, that's probably what was going on. So do I have hope that this transition can go well? Yes. Can it go better than what we've seen in the past? Yes. Can it go as far as it needs to go? Maybe. But it'll be people like you and me who will have to put their their lives and their reputations and their jobs on the line to make sure that it goes away. You you started to touch on this, but maybe you could expand more on how your experience within the industry, within the auto industry, 
and with next, um, next energy as well, how that informs your approach in your broader work in Michigan politics and environmental justice efforts within politics specifically. So from the environmental justice point of view, I, you know, I, I watched the things that we did in Detroit, making the best bumpers in the world for Cadillac. I mean, we, it was the standard of the world. When that bumper shop went down, uh, Asanya, in order for us to clean out that environmental EPA Superfund site, essentially, we would have had to have dug down four stories all around the plant footprint and taken all of that dirt out and thrown it away somewhere. Well, it probably would have been thrown away somewhere where people didn't shout loud enough or have enough money or have the ear of the politicians or open enough powerful doors in order for it not to be thrown there. We, we decided instead, it was going to cost GM money anyway, and they didn't want to spend any money. So we, instead, we decided instead to dig down a certain level and then cap it with a big concrete plug, if you will, so stuff wouldn't come up. But in today's world, we would, I don't think we could make that, that, that decision. This was probably 30 years ago or so, 40 years ago or so. Uh, uh, but, but we left. We didn't clean up properly, even when the plant was running right. We left chrome, antimony, arsenic, lead, and a number of other, cadmium and another of, of other really, really dangerous metals in the ground. And the kids playing in that area would have gotten sick and nobody would know why. So, that, I mean, that's just one example with areas like uh, hydrogen fuels, electric vehicles, garbage or waste to energy. When I was at Next Energy and, and trying to push those programs across the finish line so they'd be useful to car companies and the Department of Defense, U.S. US Department of Defense and others, it was a really hard road to hoe. It was, it was difficult. In fact, I'm going to offer that in some ways it was pretty damn near impossible at that time. Um, Joe Biden was vice president, came to our shop. I, I, I have, you know, I invite, I was, I you hosted him, him, right? Yeah. Yeah. I met with him. We talked, my son's a Marine, his son that just died not long ago was in the army. And, uh, we had a great talk, uh, uh, but he brought $1.3 billion to Detroit to electrify the automotive industry. This was back in 2008 or nine. I'm on the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act time. Exactly. Exactly. And in that time frame, a lot of that money, we, that money was handed out a little like drunken sailors to a lot of different people who had a lot of, a lot of good ideas. But, but back then I could see even in the, uh, in the auto industry, working for state government, in Focus Hope, working at Next Energy, the people that I talked to, while they would smile and nod knowingly, in their eyes you could see they weren't ready to do it. And, and I, I have to believe now that more of them are not ready to do it. You know what really tipped the scales for me? When you saw hurricanes come through and rip up a whole bunch of people's lands, uh, saw tornadoes that you'd never seen before. I actually, I think that just reflecting on those natural disasters and hurricanes that has also been a trigger moment for several experts uh, and inspirational leaders that we've talked to as well, that they, they thought this is, it's just happening too fast, too quickly, too many people. And the devastation is 
immense. And it is always the same social demographic groups that get hit the hardest and the worst because there aren't the appropriate infrastructure and nets and opportunities available for these groups. Yeah. I really think in their heart of hearts, people that are like that in their heart of hearts, until this stuff started to happen where it was starting to affect them, always felt that I have enough money where I can go somewhere and build a high enough wall and put in enough filters where it won't touch me. Well, Mother Nature doesn't work that way. You know, it'll touch you. It might touch you late, but it's going to touch you. Keith, I'd love to ask you a little bit of a more personal question, if I may. Um, So I've gotten the sense as I was researching your background and listening to other interviews that you've given that you were frequently a trailblazer in the roles you've held, even some of the stories that you've shared today. Um, And I'm curious, when you think about individuals who are just starting their careers in clean energy or in environmental justice and who are trying to help with these issues and create a future, um, and they may be similarly entering spaces where they're the only ones within a room who look the way that they do or come from a certain background. Um, do you have any advice that you might give uh, to those individuals who are, who are just starting out? Yeah, I do. I do. So, so four things, and hopefully I remember all four of them. <laughs> I talked about a couple of them already. One is, one is suspend disbelief. When people say you can't do this, oftentimes you can't. Don't listen to a folks if they say you can't. Try it anyway. Number two, be passionate to try different things. It's really important. Uh, I tell folks that my mom died at 92. She was a wonderful woman. She only had one flaw. She didn't like cheese. <laughs> that is shameful. <laughs> she had never tried cheese in her entire life. She had never tried cheese. And it was the, the, the irony of her stand was, was sort of uh, really uh, emphasized. I used to buy her uh, a, a Whopper Junior on Sundays after she'd come home from church and I would come over, I'd stop by the, the, the uh, uh, Burger King, get her a Whopper Junior, no cheese, of course. fries <laughs> and drink. And so we got in a habit of doing that one day. Cause she would always ask me, there's no cheese on here, is there? And I'd say no. One day, I come, I come away from the Burger King checking the, and there's cheese on the, on the junior Whopper. And so I got two choices. I can either get back in line and be late to go see my mom, or I can just take it and see what happens. So you know what I did? Did you lie to her? I took it. And for the first time, she never asked. <laughs> she really? get into the sandwich and she said, oh my God, this is the, this thing is great. And I said, mom, it's got cheese on it. And she literally took a napkin and started trying to wipe her tongue <laughs> off, you know, saying how bad it was. And I said, but you thought it was great before. No, no, it's got cheese on it. And so, and so, and so the, the next point would be find a thing to be passionate about and be passionate. Even if it's something that you think you maybe might not be interested in doing or might not be able to do or, you know, whatever. You'd be surprised at how many opportunities get thrown your way where your first inclination is to say, I don't know if I want to do that or I don't know if I can do that. Go for it. I was the first African-American to compete for Michigan as a gymnast and the first one on a Big Ten championship team. And this is my, no, I don't have my ring on. I have it usually a work wear. That would not have happened. I was a walk-on. 
we didn't have trampoline at my school in Pontiac, but I was a trampolinist and I walked on. I, I just, I took a gym class there and, and, and walked on. So, so that's for me, that that's kind of my example of be passionate about things and be willing to learn things you don't know. The third thing, uh, to be successful, there's, there's a chance to make a difference and there's a chance to make a name. Everybody wants to make a name. My comment is you can eventually make a name for yourself if you're willing to make a difference first in places where people won't see you, in places where they don't know what you've done, in places where you've you know, gotten really sick or hurt or injured, but you've helped a person or a group of people do something uh, that they might not be able to do. If you focus on making a difference, the opportunity to make a name will come along. And then the last thing is, I, I tell you, you probably uh, read the Stephen Covey's uh, book. Um, the highly effective people. Yeah. Yeah. Seven the habits. Of highly effective people. Yeah. yeah the, the seven <laughs> habits. Of highly effective. Thank you, Maddie. There's a story he tells in there that I tell students I talk to about big rocks. Have you, you remember that story? You know? Okay. So it goes this way. A very famous time management expert went to a class of students. He gave a guest lecture and he, he, he made a, did a demonstration that they will never forget. He was there on the lecture, lecture and talking and eventually he pulled out from underneath the shelf a, a wide mouth pickle jar and he set it on the table. And then he reached under and got another uh, 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 container that had rocks in it about the size of my fist. And he put those rocks into the jar one by one until it came to the top. And he said, is this jar full? And they said, yeah. He said, really? He reached under and he got another container and it was full of gravel. And he poured the gravel into the jar with the, with the rocks and it shook the jar so that the pebbles and gravel went around the open spaces with the, with the rocks. And he said, is it full? Well, now they got it. And they said, no. He said, you're right. So he got out a container of sand, did the same thing. And finally, he got some water out and poured that in. And when he got through, he said, there's an object lesson here. Who can tell me what it is? And a bright guy at the back of the class said, I know, I know, I know. And he said, okay, what is it? He said, my guess is from what you just showed that even if you have a full day, if someone asks you to do something else, you can always find time for it. He said, no, that's not the lesson at all. He said, the lesson here is if you don't put the big rocks in first, you can't get them in. And I actually have a jar that I show where I take, take them out and put them back and you can't put them in if you get all that other stuff. So he said, the bigger rocks in your life, the things that are really important, it might be family, it might be getting a, an education, it might be watching your health, it could be animals, your dogs, it could be helping your neighbors, or what, whatever it is, you have to make sure every day when you get up that you think about what are the big rocks in my life and make sure they get in your day. Because if you don't, you'll let sand and gravel and what and all a bunch of other stuff get in the way and you'll never get done what you need to do. So my comment to, to the students I talk to is remember tomorrow morning when you get up. If you've got a list made, if you haven't got the list made, make it. Make sure those things get in. So uh, uh, suspending disbelief, being passionate about things, new things comes to that. Make a difference before you're thinking about making a name. And remember to get the big things in your life out in front of you right away. Those are the four things I would tell people. That's beautiful. I love it. Keith, this was so lovely. Thank you for taking the time 
to be with us today and share your uh, perspectives and experiences and history and so much more with us today. And thank you also, Maddie, for co-hosting with me today. It was a great pleasure. Mine too. Thank you for having us, Sonia. Thank you. Thank you. Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miyamiaki, Lenape, Borowadmik, and Sawanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.